Because we're losing my brother in heart attack. Oh my god. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, you have to take this because I can't. <laughs> oh my god. So, <laughs> is this going to be the thing we use as the commercial for the show? <laughs> Just us freaking dying during a horror movie. What the hell are we talking about? <laughs> All right, you are definitely going to have to listen ahead to find out what the heck we were laughing about. This episode will go down in history as the episode where my brother nearly killed me. Before we jump in, I just wanted to address a couple things. A few episodes ago, you heard us talking about doing something on Clubhouse. That's been put on hold because Clubhouse had this whole revamp of their app, and it's it's kind of a mess, so I don't know that we're going to do it. If we do, we will let you know. Keep, uh, keep listening and keep watching our social media feeds. In other news, we're doing some experimentation with video, so be on the lookout. We're going to be doing some video for our social and possibly turn this into a video podcast. So I'm excited about it. Hopefully that'll be something we'll be able to launch after the new year. Well, that's all the time I'm going to take here. I'm going to get the film reel going so you can listen to our show. And while I do, let me just ask you, if you're enjoying it, please share it with someone and let us know that you did. All right, we are back to the Silver Screen Happy Hour. This is part two of Silence of the Midsummer. So... Go for it. If you haven't <laughs> listened to part one yet, you should, because we uh, started drinking at the beginning of that show. <laughs> so this is going to be interesting because I just Jesus. started my third one, and, and, and I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, it's and, not like we're not. I didn't drink three in an hour, you know. We're, we've been here a long time. Now I <laughs> tried a bottle of Chianti in our in honor of um, Hannibal Lecter. And I didn't like it at all. I'm almost done with the bottle. <laughs> He's getting ready to switch to beer. Yeah, this I have is not my... going to be a good night for you, Jer. I have beer backups. <laughs> I have children. I told them, don't don't switch. Don't don't mix wine and beer. It's oh, that stuff doesn't affect me. You know our bloodline. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the bloodline. The bloodline that's uh, a... Point one five. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You drink my when when mosquitoes bite me, they get pulled over for drunk driving. <laughs> they just crash. They fucking crash into trees and shit. That's what happens when mosquitoes suck my blood. <laughs> All right. So Holy crap. Let's let's you, get this on track. So, so if you're joining us now. We were in the Silence of the Lambs is going to be the best one yet. We're both half in the bag. And not only that, it's my. So, uh, those of you who have listened to my podcast, you already know how I feel about this movie. All right. I'm going to say it again for those who are listening for the first time. Which, if you're listening for the first time, stop and go back to part one of the show so you can hear us talk about Midsummer. Oh, my God. But But here we are. Brace yourself. It's such a rough movie. But from a, a filmmaker's, I'm not a filmmaker, but I'm a film appreciator. From, I mean, a filmmaking point of view, it was freaking genius. It, yes, it, it was, phenomenal. But it was so hard to watch. So, anyway, it's phenomenal. We're about to move on to the next movie that we intended yes. to do in the last episode. And yes, um, uh, so I, I, you may so, never ever have heard of it. Um, you know, it's it's, it's a little it's, scene, little known of film. <laughs> From 1991, <laughs> called Silence of the Lambs, which, by contrast to Midsummer, won five Academy Awards, yeah. and it's the it last was recognized in its day. Yes, I mean... it it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, the last to win the four top, and then it also won Best Screenplay. Now we did our podcast on. Um, Everything, everywhere, all at once, mm-hmm. and I remember saying that it's more Oscar decorated than Silence of the Lambs, and it's true because it won three acting categories. Now it wasn't Best Picture, Best Director, Actor, and Actress, but it was Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress. Or I'm sorry, oh god, the wine is getting to me. <laughs> best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and then Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress on top of it, yeah, it and was, screenplay. It was packed. So, 
So I remember I remember saying on our podcast then, if you haven't listened to it, listen to that too. Our Everything Everywhere All Is One podcast, which we dedicated an entire show to that one too, didn't we? Yeah. 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 So um that was more highly decorated than Silence of the Lambs. But until that film, Silence of the Lambs was considered in our lifetime anyway, the most I mean, depending on how old you are, 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress. And then you got to go all the way back to, what would we say? Was it 1941 mm-hmm. or something like wow. that? Uh, or, or 1938 or something? It happened one night with uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress. Only three films have done it. Silence of the Lambs is the last to do it. And it inspired me to be a writer. So before we get on to the story, I'm going to yeah. tell you. I'm going to tell you a, a smaller story. I don't know if I told this on a previous podcast, but we definitely earn it today. My, fr- I was uh, 15 years old, hmm. hadn't yet turned 16. This is 1991, early. This is February, by the way. Silence of the Lambs was was released on Valentine's Day of 1991. Again, let me illustrate yeah. the the date movie nature of this film. Yeah, right. Um, oh, my God. So it had been out very briefly. I want to say maybe a week had gone by, and my friends were like, dude, let's go see this movie. And I had no intention of seeing it. Now, keep in mind, I had not seen any billboards. I had not seen any trailers. Mm-hmm. I had not seen any TV spots. I knew nothing about it. I thought it was about farming. I thought it was another boring-ass <laughs> three-hour movie like out of Africa. And I'm like, Silence of the Lambs? No, I don't want to see that. <laughs> right. I don't. I, I don't. No, <laughs> I forgot that, about that. That doesn't sound interesting yeah. at all. And my friends were like, oh, come on, we got to go see it. So a bunch of us went in a couple different cars, and we all went to the Showcase Cinema back then <laughs> on, what was it, 15 Mile in Van Dyke in, in Warren? Was it 15 or 16? It was 15, no, wasn't it? Was it was 15 Mile, yeah. 15 Mile in Van Dyke. That's where I Showcase saw Jurassic Cinema. Park. Oh, boy. Yeah. So uh, it's not there anymore, is it? They tore no, that shit down. It's another theater, but it's not in the same spot. They tore it down and started over. Right. It was Sterling Heights, not Warren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. I also saw True Romance. Yeah. <laughs> at that theater. You know what's funny? I was with a friend of mine in the theater. And I saw the big billboard for True Romance, mm-hmm. and I and I, I think it was you that told me how good it was. Oh hell yeah! And I said, we got to go see that. That looks awesome. <laughs> and it was Christian Slater and and uh, Patricia Arquette laying. It was a it was a like a banner sign. Yeah. And they're laying on top of each other, and it says True Romance. And my friend goes, "What? I'm not watching that movie with you now." <laughs> Let me preface this by saying, back then, we used slurs that are not acceptable today. Yeah, right, right, right. He called me a few of those slurs for wanting to go see what he perceived to be a romance film with him. And I'm like, and I was like, no, no, you got it all wrong. This is like an action film. So, okay. So there it is. It happened a lot because it was funny when I went alone. And then it's also funny, like, is it a date movie? I mean, could you imagine right. all the date people that went on dates? Hey, romance movie, let's go hey, watch it. Look, oh, look. you emptied the bottle. The 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 Chianti, <laughs> which again, if you weren't listening to the first part of this, this was a five dollar ninety seven cent clearance <laughs> bottle of Chianti at CVS Pharmacy, and I took the first sip and I thought I was gonna die because <laughs> I'm not a wine drinker, and this is a cheap ass version of a wine. And here it is, my last glass. Yeah. It, it was only three glasses, right? It was four. Oh, okay. You, you got a heavy pour there. I can't. <laughs> my heart is like, okay, red wine's good for us, but you're overdoing it, sir. You're overdoing it. Okay. All right, so we're getting right. way off topic here. So I Probably went to the theater, out, but we'll go for showcase cinema, to see Sansa Lambs with my friends. I had no intention of seeing it. Didn't want to see it. Didn't know what it was about. They dragged me into this thing. And you know what the funny thing is? I have since texted friends of mine or emailed them through uh, Messenger, Facebook Messenger, and said, I have this vivid memory of this, but for the life of me, I can't remember who it was. Was it you? Was it you? And my friends were all like, I I don't think so. And then one friend was like, yeah, that sounds like something I would do. So here's what happened. (laughs) So we go and we watch the movie. Yeah. I am just balls in, right? Just all, I am just enthralled, just dialed. We get out of the theater. The The credits go, and we get out. And back at that time, everybody wanted to go to National Coney Island on Van Dyke, right? right. That's where you went yeah. after a movie to eat. 
you know, the the Euro sandwiches or the honeys, the chicken honeys or whatever. And everyone's like, yeah, let's go to let's go to National. That's just what we called it, National. Let's go to National. I was like, I, I got to watch this movie again. <laughs> I, I'm going back in line, and I'm buying a ticket for the next show, That's and amazing. I'm watching this again. And I had no ride. Like I like I had no car. I should say I had no car. You're like I'll figure it out. <laughs> there was like three cars among seven or eight of us. Right. And one of my friends said, "You know what? Fuck it. I'll stay. I'll watch it. I'll drive you home." <laughs> so I can't even remember who it was that yeah, I was with. That's crazy. Huh. But but anyway, we stayed for another show. We watched another. Showing of Silence of the Lambs back to back. Yeah, that's amazing. And when I left the theater that night, I went home knowing I had decided at that point at 15 years old. By the way, for anyone that's saying, how did you get into the movie? Back then in Michigan, nobody carded for movies, okay? If you looked like you were 18, (laughs) if you looked like you were in high school, you got into the movie, okay? There was no carding. Nobody carded back then. Nobody gave a shit. I didn't realize you were that young. I was 15 years old. Yeah. And at that point, I knew I wanted something to do with the movies, and I wanted to be a writer. Like, that's that's yep. that was the movie. This is the movie that inspired me. People always ask me all the time, what's your favorite movie? I always say Star Wars, because it is. But then I always stop and say, wait, wait, wait. But the movie that inspired me to be a writer was Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. This movie has certain... I have a special place in my heart for this movie. Yeah. So I was excited for this day. We wasted a lot of time <laughs> building up to it. But... Fuck, if you're going to hear it, you, you got to know everything, right? Hell yeah. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> where the fuck do we begin? Sounds of Lambs. All right. So, we always talk about writing structure. By the way, this film won Best Adapted Screenplay. It was adapted from the 1988 book of the same name. Okay. For anyone that doesn't know the history of this character... Um, Thomas Harris, the novel writer, wrote several books. One of them was called Red Dragon, which got made in the 80s into a film called Manhunter by Michael Mann. Mm. If you know the name Michael Mann, you know that he is the creator of Miami Vice Mm. uh, and did movies like Collateral with Tom Cruise. Uh, He's a very stylized director. And he turned... Red Dragon into Manhunter, which was in Miami Vice version of Hannibal Lecter. Brian Cox played Hannibal Lecter in the film. In fact, I even want to say that Lecter, the name Lecter, was misspelled hmm. in the credits. There was a K in there instead of a C. Yeah. Um, and but pretty graphic, pretty graphic uh, film. Did fairly well at the box office. But until the success of Silence of the Lambs, the movie that we're about to talk about. All of a sudden, there was a whole newfound love for this. They ended up remaking Red Dragon as Red Dragon. Wow. With uh, Rafe, history. Wow. Rafe, Rafe Fiennes as the murderer, huh. and uh, Edward Norton played the cop. Now, Red Dragon's very similar to Silence of the Lambs as far as story, but Hannibal Lecter remained Hannibal Lecter, and they got Anthony Hopkins to reprise his role wow. in Red Dragon. He, of course, then was in the sequel, Hannibal. In fact, I want to say Hannibal came out first before Red Dragon. Hannibal came out first. Hannibal was the sequel, the direct sequel to Silence of the Lambs. They couldn't get Jodie Foster, and they couldn't get Jonathan Demme. Um, So I think they got uh, Ridley Scott directed Hannibal, and they got Julianne Moore to play Clary Starling. Um, But they did get Anthony Hopkins. And... uh, while Hannibal is very, very interesting on the your edge of the, your seat thriller, I'm going to mention something later about Ray Liotta, who's in that film, is forced to eat his own brains by Hannibal Lecter. I'm going to mention that in a minute. Oh, um, God. <laughs> um, that sequel, Hannibal, and the Edward Norton film, Red Dragon, and now they've made TV series wow. about Hannibal. Yeah. It has spawned off into an entire franchise. Yeah, I haven't followed any of that stuff, but... Yeah, yeah, it's it's all very good. It's all interesting. Yeah. But nothing comes close to Silence of the Lambs. So the 1991 film Silence of the Lambs is really the pinnacle. I think it's the best film of the 90s. It's one of, in my opinion, the greatest films of all time, which, you hear me right now, and it's not the, the, not the Chianti talking. <laughs> Hannibal Lecter's escape scene is up there 
with the baptism scene of the Godfather oh, as yeah. one of the greatest scene sequences of all time. Right. <laughs> if you have not seen this film, you have to. Yeah. You have to. You have to see this film. If you've seen The Godfather, you have to see Sansa Lambs and Hannibal Lecter's oh, and escape by the way, scene. There's going to be spoilers. I mean, if you haven't seen it by now. Sorry, can't do nothing for you. Pause we got, it. We got, Go watch it. I mean, yeah, come it, on. It's about time. Uh, if you haven't seen it, shame on you. <laughs> My God. <laughs> It's, right. The film is a marvel, but anyway, okay. So we talk again. We talked about this in, with Midsummer, basic screenwriting, and this there's another one of the things I love about the script. We've talked before on other podcasts where I said uh, know the rules before you break them, right? Uh, when, when we trashed that Mel Gibson movie, uh, right? <laughs> on the what the radio. fuck was that movie called? On, on the radio. Yeah. On the line. So, on the line. On the li- God, what a terrible movie. I don't movie. remember. Anyway. There's two of them, right? <laughs> now, now I'm confused. <laughs> um, anyway, I think it's on the line. Uh, we talked about how they break screenwriting rules, but not in a good way, right? They break them because they're just terrible. Silence of Lambs uh, follows that theory that you have to know the rules before you break them, which means that you're not necessarily breaking them. You're just shifting them a little bit. Right. Midsummer does the same thing. So we always talk about the beginning when you open a film, you see your main character at work, at home, at play, whatever. You set up their normal life before something crazy happens. Midsummer flips that. The movie opens with tragedy. And then Sansa Lambs does the same thing. It opens with, uh, and again, she's on the training course in Quantico, Virginia. She's an FBI uh, trainee, right? And she gets pulled off the course to go meet with Jack Crawford, who's played by Scott Glenn. And right off the bat, he sends her on this errand to go interview Hannibal Lecter. Now, we haven't known her at all. We haven't met her. We don't know anything about her. Five fucking minutes in, and she's meeting with Hannibal Lecter. Like, we don't even know. We're we're caught off guard. Like, right off the bat, like, holy shit. This can't be Act 2 already, is it? No, 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 no. They're just reshifting the standards of screenwriting. Right, they don't give you a chance to relax, mm-hmm. and both Midsummer and Sound Slams do this for that exact purpose. They don't want the audience to feel comfortable yet. <laughs> it sets the tone of uncomfortable right. to start the movie off because if there's anything more uncomfortable than Clarice's meeting with Hannibal Lecter, well, and, tell me what it and, is because and, I don't know. And you find out in those those first few minutes, there's a serial killer on the loose, also. That yes. they, they want to solve that crime. Trivia. So, and that's basically why she's going to see him. I have trivia for you. Yeah. When Clarice goes into Jack Crawford's office, uh, Crawford played by Scott Glenn, he's not there yet. She's waiting for him. She turns around. She sees all the pictures on the wall. She sees news clippings. The camera zooms or, or, or kind of like pulls down where you see all these photos and you see a newspaper clipping on the wall with a big headline that says Bill Skins Fifth. Have you read the article? No. You can because the camera's close enough. So if you pause it, you can read the article. Oh, it has God. nothing to do with uh, Buffalo Bill. Really? You know, what it ha- you know what it has to do with? What? Hannibal Lecter. Oh, weird. It says Bill Skins Fifth, but the entire article is about Lecter's arrest. And it ends with a quote Lecter gave prosecutors as he was being handcuffed and shackled off. Something about the truth will come out. These are all lies. Bon appetit. <laughs> so next wow. time you watch Sansa Lambs, pause it and read that article. It has nothing to do with Buffalo Bill. And the funny thing is at the end of the movie, that clipping is in Buffalo Bill's basement. <laughs> That's wild. But the headline is Bill Skins Fifth. And that's what audience members see. Yeah, right, yeah, that's yeah, what we yeah. see as an audience. Yeah, we, we assume it's it. we assume it's another article yeah, about Buffalo re- Bill. Yeah, we're not going to read it. Yeah, <laughs> until so, we get the technology to pause it. <laughs> right. So the information is that Buffalo Bill is a serial killer on the loose, and Hannibal Lecter is known as Hannibal the Cannibal because he killed people and ate them, and he's in custody. He's been in custody for eight years, and Clarice, Clarice Starling is a trainee at the FBI Academy and Jack Crawford sends her on this errand to interview Lecter. I have to tell you that right off the bat, the first five minutes in, Jack Crawford is very brilliant in this move. And he knows that Lecter knows Buffalo Bill. There is no evidence of that. But I believe it to be true because something that uh, he says, 
Jack Crawford tells her, if he's, I don't expect him to cooperate with you. But if he doesn't, check around his cell. Is he drawing? Is he sketching? Is he, if he is, what's he sketching? He tells her that flat out. And then he drops the theme of the movie on her. Are you ready for the theme? Mm-hmm. Be very careful with Hannibal Lecter. Do not tell him anything personal. Believe me, Starling, you do not want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. He lays that on her in the first five minutes. Right. What the fuck does she do for the rest of the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I know, right? (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> but what's but what but let's set this up. What's her tangible goal? Her tangible goal is to just I I just want to be involved. She even says that later in the film. I just want to be in on it. That's all. You know what I mean? Like I just want to be a part of it. I just want to help. Mm-hmm. But we all know her spiritual goal, which she does not know she needs, is to be the hero. If you would have told Clary Starling in the beginning of the film, you're going to be the hero that catches Buffalo Bill and saves the girl, she would have been like, no, I'm just a trainee. I don't. Right. I am not I'm not equipped to even be near that. Right. That's her spiritual goal. Right. Right? Her tangible goal is I just want to dude, this is good for my graduation. This looks good on my resume. Right. I just want to be involved. I just want to help. I want to help, you know, bridge the gap and maybe do some good or whatever. That's her tangible goal. So we get into the again, like I said, the first five, ten minutes, she goes to meet Lecter. And what does she say? When she sees his sketchings, she says, uh, do you draw these pictures, doctor? And he says, that's the Duomo seen from the Belvedere. You know, Florence, that's what he says to her. Two major pieces of information if you're not paying attention. Right. Buffalo Bill lives in Belvedere, Ohio. So he's telling her right off the bat. He's just giving her a little clue. This thing I painted is from the Bel- is seen from the Belvedere. Buffalo Bills and Belvedere, Ohio. Next thing, if you've seen the sequel, after he escapes, he goes to Florence, Italy. So only she would know that, right? He gives her that piece of information, basically saying, if I ever get the fuck out of here, this is where I'm going. Hmm. We haven't even met him yet. We don't know anything about him that much, really. We don't know anything about her. But in the first 10 minutes, it has given us this information left and right. Like Midsummer, Silence of the Lambs is a movie you got to watch more than once because you pick up on yeah, all this shit later. It. Right. Right. You pick up on all this shit later. So um, so then there's the real horrific scene, <laughs> much like Midsummer. The, the opening of this film is very disturbing. Yeah. She, the interview doesn't go well. She tries oh, to she tries to push him around and muscle him a little bit. Of course, he turns to stone and gives her his famous, you know, farfa beans and uh, you know I ate uh, I ate his liver with the farfa beans and nice Chianti. <laughs> um, and right. then he just shuts down. And then he just shuts down. He says, "You fly back to school now, I Agent Starling." The acting, though, I mean, spe- yes. I mean- Hands yes. down. So they they deserve. I agree. They so this is one of those boring podcasts where they just agree with each other. I mean, this isn't you know cable TV. We're not going to be yelling at each other on this one. I mean, for real. But but for reason, right? Yeah. Like for reason. Oh my God. Um. Uh, uh, God, I don't even know where to begin. So funny thing about that. Anthony Hopkins is on screen. I think on screen for about twenty one minutes. And he wins Best Actor. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. Now, (laughs) but you can say, well, even when he's not on screen, his presence looms large, right? Like, even when he's not on frame, they're talking about him or they're afraid of him or what. Like, his his presence is there. It reminds me of, I think I've told you this story. We might have talked about it on a previous podcast. I don't know. But if it's redundant, maybe for the listeners, it isn't. When we're... uh, Ricardo Montalban was first approached in being in the Star Trek sequel, mm. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. At the time, Ricardo Montalban was one of the biggest stars in the world because he was on Fantasy Island, right. which was the biggest show on TV at the time. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> that plane, that plane. <laughs> that dude. He, he was one of the biggest stars of the, in the world in the early 80s. Yeah, right. And he was like, 
uh, a Star Trek sequel? And they're like, but but you were in, you know, because of the episode that you were in back in the 60s. Oh, yeah. They wanted, they picked that to do a direct sequel of. <laughs> so you would be reprising your character of Khan. And he said, well, I don't know. So he reads the script and he says, I don't want to do it. And his manager's like, what? What do you mean you don't want to do it? This is Star Trek, man. This is one of the. This is going to be a huge movie, right after the success of Star Wars. Right. See, you know, this is big. This is an actor's dream to get that hand. This is an actor's on a dream, and he said, "I don't want to do it because I'm not in it enough." He said, <laughs> I'm, I'm, "I'm only in a few scenes." Right. And again, right now, nobody would ever say. No actor would say that normally. Yeah, but when amazing. you're the biggest star yeah. on TV at the time, just think you know, what they would have made if he wouldn't have done that. Well, and the funny thing is, Jack Nicholson did this for The Departed. He told Scorsese, I don't want to do it because I'm not in it enough. Yeah, that, so Scorsese said, okay, i got to rewrite it to where he's in it more. Well, Wrath of Khan would have been a, just a turd. If yes, absolutely. If they would have made it the other way. An absolute turd. Yeah. But his agent said, wow. read it again. Wait, what movies are we talking about? <laughs> wait, wait. I'm going to get to the end of this little anecdote. You know we go off on tangents on these podcasts. So his agent says, read it again. Read it again. So he reads it again, and he agrees to do it. And what he said in the interview, what changed his mind was that, yes, he's only in a few scenes, but when he's not on screen, they're talking about him. Yeah. And he's like, that's what won it over for me. He's like, I, I as an actor, I usually just thumb to the pages that I'm in, right? Right. <laughs> the right, highlighted right. pages that you're on. He said, when I read the script entirety, wow. I realized that even when I wasn't on screen, they're talking about me. Yeah, hell yeah. Right? You're he's the like, character. You're, yeah. yeah, he's like, I had a complete cloud over this whole film. So that's when he agreed to do it. Same thing kind of here. Silence of Lambs, Anthony Hopkins wins Best Actor. He's only on the screen 21 minutes. But his presence looms large. Yeah, it's, a good, it's a good comparison. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Over the whole film. Right. When you hear that, you're like, 21 minutes? That's it? If you've seen Silence of Lambs, you're like, surely he's in it for more than 21 minutes. <laughs> he's not. But you think he is. Yeah. <laughs> because he looms large over the whole well, damn so film. He, he technically is. Technically, His character he is. is in the film, yeah. The whole damn time, yes. So, okay. So uh, so then we talk about that script structure where they start with something crazy, and then they go into at work, at play, at home. You right. see Clarice and her regular day of life, right? She's training at the academy. Nothing spectacular. She's at the library writing up her report. Oh, we skipped over the traumatic thing about the, the interview ending. The cellmate next to Lecter. Oh, come on, man. I don't even want to talk about this. It was so gross. <laughs> jerks off into his hand and throws it at Clarice's face. Yeah. Well, and by the way, way... Actually, he didn't just throw it at her face. It was a bullseye. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Not only did he attempt, he fucking nailed it. Like, right on her cheek. If I tried to throw cum at anything, I'm likely to miss 99% of the time. <laughs> Not that I've tried. <laughs> Alright, we're going to have to cut all this out because we're losing my brother in heart attack. Oh my god. <laughs> I might miss 99% of the time, but Miggs nails a bullseye. <laughs> it gets her right in the face. Holy shit. Yeah, you have to take this because I can't. <laughs> oh, my God. So, is this going to be the thing we use at the commercial for the show? <laughs> Just us freaking dying during a horror movie. What the hell are we talking about? So anyway, all oh right, sorry. God. All right, back to normal here. <laughs> but that scene was so disturbing. I mean, you animating it though and just put me over the edge. Holy shit. Okay, so then she, so then we see her at work, at home, at play. You know, she's working out and she's uh, in training at the academy. Um, there's things that she's learning and stuff. And they show her at the library investigating, and then there's the call from Crawford, and he says, "Okay, I read your report." But he mentioned somebody. Did you follow up? That leads her to the storage unit. 
mm-hmm. where she finds the head in the bottle. Okay. Here's where we get to our first turning point because she goes to see Lecter again. And they have a little interesting conversation between each other. But he says to her, I'm offering you a psychological profile, Buffalo Bill, based on the case evidence. Now, he hints that he wants a deal out of this without saying it. When he first gets up, she's already been given clues. He tells her it's a fletchling killer's first attempt at transformation. She's like, what transformation and what fletchling killer? Is this Buffalo Bill you're talking about? You know what I mean? Like, she, he's already given her clues, mm-hmm. and he just starts ignoring her after that. And he says, I've been in this room for eight years now, Clarice, and I know they'll never, ever let me out while I'm alive. What I want is a window. I want a view where I can see trees or even water. Uh, you know what I mean? He's telling her what he wants. So he's already laying it down, and fucking Tom uh, Howard Shore's score, the musical yeah. score, starts to kick up at that time. It's yeah. such a great scene. Yep. And she knows. She gets up, and she go, and he goes, uh, you know, I'll help you catch him, Clarice. And she goes, you know who he is, don't you? Like, she knows. She knows. She's like, you know who he is, and you won't give him to us unless you get something in return. Now we're in act two. Yeah. That's the first turning point because now we're in a whole new spectrum here. Right. Um, and then we get introduction to Catherine Martin. She gets abducted by Buffalo Bill. We see him in the flesh, right? For the I was for the first time we actually see him mm-hmm. um, trying to load that chair into the back of the van. Yeah. Right. What was the woman's name that he captured there? And uh, she was in she she was in a TV show. Her her real name is uh, Brooke. <sighs> Grey's Anatomy? Uh, I think she's in Grey's. Why is she? I never watched Grey's Anatomy. But anyway, she plays Catherine Martin, the daughter of the senator. Anyway. Um, And then Crawford pulls Starling out and says, let's go. You're coming with us. There's more shit going on. We found another dead body. And now we're in Act 2, the first part of Act 2, where they're investigating, right, the... um, They're at that funeral home, Mm -hmm. right? And she has that little flashback of seeing her father. And again, remember, I said that the script structure starts, generally you get to know the person first before the shit hits the fan. In this film, the shit hits the fan first. Right after that scene is over, as she's walking to her car, she has that flashback of seeing her father. So they're already starting to build up uh, a backstory, right? Uh, They have the autopsy on that dead body, the corpse in the back of that funeral home where they find the cocoon in the throat. Press release that Catherine Martin, the the daughter of the Senator Ruth Martin, has been kidnapped. She goes to see Lecter again. And that's where we get to the midpoint scene. The midpoint scene of Silence of the Lambs is the the famous quid pro quo scene. I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though, about yourself. And what the fuck did Crawford say to her at the very beginning? (laughs) You want to tell him nothing personal. And what is her reaction? Go, doctor. <laughs> like, yeah. let's get it on, bitch. <laughs> because her ambition is so high. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. We remember what I said. The tangible goal you reach at the midpoint scene that is to be a player, to be involved. She just wants to help. And when he says, I'll tell you everything if you tell me everything about yourself, she makes that decision at the midpoint scene to reach her tangible goal and say, I'm a fucking player now. Now I'm in the game. Yeah. Because now he'll only talk to me. Right. Because I'm going to tell him shit about my childhood, which I shouldn't do because this motherfucker is going to get my head. I'm going to have nightmares for the rest of my life. But (laughs) I'm willing to do it because of my ambition to be a part, right? To To be a part. Yeah, to be the hero. Well, no. She doesn't know that she's going to be the hero yet. Well, no. She just wants to tell Crawford. She's still at that. So, yeah, that's the spiritual goal, right? Right. Her tangible goal is to just get information so she can tell Crawford. Hell, again, we're going to get to it later. Every time she gets information, she calls Crawford. Yeah. Hey, look what else I found out. Look what else I found out. I found out this. I found out that. She doesn't want to be the hero. She just wants to tell the professionals how to get them. Yep. Right? So uh, the senator's yeah, pissed they off. That, they played that well. I mean, man. Dude, it's so perfect. It's so perfect. Um, so then the senator gets pissed about this fake deal. They transfer him to Memphis for real. They have what I consider to be my favorite scene of the whole film. And it's before the escape. But it's the last time Lecter and Clarice have their face-to-face. Yeah. yeah. She brings him his drawings. 
It's my favorite scene, and it almost chokes me up every time I watch it. Again, a lot of this is because Howard Shore, his score, the musical score, because it's dead silent for most of this scene. And Jonathan Demme shoots it. They always say, like, uh, an uneasy feeling mm-hmm. is where a person's face takes up almost the entire frame. He zooms so close on Hannibal Lecter in that scene and so close on Starling. Yeah. As he says, tell me about why you left that ranch. And she goes into the whole story about the lamb. I woke up in the middle of the night. I heard a lamb screaming. Um, They were slaughtering the lambs, right? Right, right? And she's just a child. I mean, think about what she's pouring out to him right now. Yeah. Just to get information. She's willing to pour all this out. She starts to get choked up. She starts to teary-eye. And she's like, I grabbed, I thought if I could just save one. And I picked up one lamb and I ran as fast as I could. And, of course, she didn't get very far. The cops pick her up. It was, you know, the the rancher was so mad that she was sent to live in an orphanage and blah, 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 because her father died at a young age. The music starts to kick up when Lecter says, what became of your lamb, Clarice? And she goes, they killed him. And he, and that's when he delivers pretty much the, the title of the movie. She says, he says, you still wake up in the middle of the night, don't you, to the screaming of the lambs? And she says, yes. And he goes, you think if you save poor Catherine, you can make them stop, don't you? You think if Catherine lives, you'll never, ever wake up ever again to the awful screaming of the lambs. And she says, great scene. And oh she God. says, I don't know. And she's crying at this point. She's yeah. like, I don't know. And he got what he wanted. So he simply says, thank you. Thank you. He got everything he ever needed to know about her in that moment. Yep. And then when she says, tell me his name, by then the authorities are already coming in. And he can smell Dr. Chilton coming in. And he goes, Dr. Chilton, I believe. I believe you know each other. <laughs> so <What a> great. <laughs> yeah. And, and it ends so eerie because as they're shuffling her out, he goes, Clarice, your case file. And he puts it through the bars, and she goes to reach for it, and he touches her finger with his finger. If you didn't get juice bumps from a (laughs) chilling moment like that, you have no soul. Because at at that moment, you're like, oh, God, he touched her finger. (laughs) Again, 15 years old, I'm in the theater when that happened. The first time I saw it, I remember thinking, oh, he's going to whisper something to her. He's going to tell her who, who it is. Nope. Yep, and, and then bam, it changes that fast, and you're like, he oh. just he just, just like, wanted he just wanted frozen. to touch her. He just wanted to touch her, right? Because it's it was it wasn't enough to get inside her head. Yeah. He wanted to feel her. That was, that was amazing. So dude. creepy. It's my favorite scene in the film. But then the next scene almost tops it, <laughs> as what I uh, again what I said is one of the greatest scenes in film history. Uh, up there with the baptism scene of the Godfather, yeah, is the Lecter escape scene. Now, similar to Midsummer, where I say the more you watch it, the more you catch. Mm-hmm. When you watch Silence of the Lambs more than once, the initial shock of that reveal, his escape, right? Mm-hmm. Again, Howard Shore's score, amazing score. And it raises the tension, right? And he is, uh, you don't know where he is. The cops are trying to storm the building. You don't know where he is. You see this cop has been carried off into an ambulance. And the moment that he stands up in the ambulance and pulls that cop's flesh mask off his face, (laughs) there's a shock there that I that I don't know most people... Like, I, I don't know if they were ready to handle that yet. <laughs> exactly. But here's what I found and <laughs> watching it. You know, I've seen it a million times now, but here's what you get when you watch it on the second time. The shock of him pulling the skin off is gone because you know it's him. Yeah. But it raises the tension earlier in the movie, yeah. earlier in the scene where he's laying there as the cop. They think he's the cop. Right. Right. I know. It was But now genius. that when you watch it a second time and you know it's Lecter, your tension gets raised even more. And yeah. I couldn't help but think about Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock had an interview one time 
and he was trying to explain suspense to mm. the interviewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, okay, let's say you and I are in this room right now and we're talking about baseball. And then suddenly a bomb goes off and we both die. He says, the shock that hits the audience might last a couple of seconds. He's like, but suspense is where before the scene even starts, you show the bad guy put the bomb under the desk. Yeah. <laughs> and now you and I are in the room talking about baseball. Now the audience is thinking, stop talking about baseball. Get the fuck out of there. There's a bomb under the desk. You know what I mean? The suspense yeah. is worth more yeah, yeah. than the explosion. <laughs> so you get the reveal of Lecter pulling that flesh mask off his face is scary enough. Yeah. But when you go back and watch it a second time, the tension is raised up until that moment because now you know it's him. <laughs> now you know it's him the whole time. Yeah, they got it's, him. So it's a movie that was a masterpiece that got better every time you saw it. It gets better with taste. Yes. Every time it ages like wine. The more you watch it, the better it gets. And I'm drinking Chianti here. That's great. It gets better as it goes. Yeah. And and they. I mean, it's just like the whole time they're in the elevator, and you know that that's Lecter and, and the fucking the, and then the, and the blood gurney? starts dripping down, and you know the whole time that Lecter's laying right there, like the tension is raised. <laughs> All right, it's it's again the escape scene up there. I'll put it up there with the Godfather's baptism scene. It is so great yep. for anyone that doesn't know what I'm talking about. When I keep saying that, the famous baptism scene in the Godfather is where. Uh, Michael Corleone is standing as godfather to his uh, sister's child as it's getting baptized, as the baby is getting baptized. It's intercut with scenes of all the deaths he's ordered, right? All his men are killing the heads of all the other five families in this scene that he's proclaiming, I renounce Satan. I wow. renounce evil doings. I renounce all this stuff. I'm yeah. standing as Godfather. And while all this shit's going on, he's killing all these people. Right. So, that, of course, that to me, I think, is one of the greatest of all time. Lecter's escape scene is up there. Yeah. As one of the best of ever in film history. Yeah. Um, for those of you that are interactive with our podcast, email us. Tell us what you think is the <laughs> best scene in film history and see where it matches with uh, Michael Corleone's baptism scene and Hannibal Lecter's escape scene. Yeah. So now we get to the escape scene. Now we get to the all is lost, right? Because the next shot. Oh, by the way, I got to mention this too. The second. Lecter pulls the flesh the flesh mask off. What is the very next shot? It's the payphone dropping. Oh yeah. And Ardelia, um, Ardelia Map, who's played play, played by Cassie Lemons, who's a director by the way in real life. Um, she's also an actress, but she's an actress in this movie. She's also a director. Running down the hallway to tell Clarice, right? Fucking Lecter's escaped! Everyone run for cover! Right? Like, <laughs> basically, that shit's hitting the fan in the worst way. The worst way. Yeah. And she's run, She's sprinting down That's the hallway. That's a bad day. <laughs> That's, a, But it's a great shot, the way he shoots it. Yeah. And, and this was going to be my point on that. This is going away from screenwriting and more towards directing. Phone calls can be boring. Yeah. In right? film, right? <laughs> They're relaying information sometimes you already know. So it's boring. Yep. Make phone calls interesting. I always talked about when I was Dropping in film the school. Dropping phone and running. <laughs> when I was in film school, one of my teachers asked about uh, phone call. How do you make phone calls interesting? And I raised my hand and I said, Fargo. Because the phone call never happens. In Fargo... Uh, it's uh, Jerry Lundegaard, right, played by William H. Macy. He's practicing how he's going to tell the yeah. father-in-law that yeah. the daughter was kidnapped. Oh, no. Oh, oh, no. Oh, Gene. Oh, my wife. He's going through all these practices, and then he picks up the phone to dial, and that's when the scene cuts, yeah. right? They don't actually show the phone call. What's important there is his rea his his preparation yeah. for the phone call. Almost Sansa a comedic, Lambs, a comedic right. <laughs> Sansa Lamps does the same thing on the back end. The yeah. phone call itself is not important. What's important is Ardelia's reaction to it. So the second Lecter pulls that skin mask off his face, and you know that it's Lecter. Yeah. The scene cuts to that the phone just dropping. That's right. Yeah. What a and great... her and her sprinting down the hallway. They didn't even have to explain how. Exactly. He, you, you, he did it. Right. Who called her? Why did he call her on a payphone? Yeah. What's the info? We don't care about any of that. Nope. All that matters is, is now <laughs> we know Lecter is escaped. Yeah. Yep. Right? So that's all is lost. And it's almost to the point where Clarice even says to Ardila, it's over. It's over. She even says to her, she's dead. 
right? Talking about Catherine Martin. Because she feels at that moment that Lecter was just fucking with her. He was just using her to get into a place where he could escape. Right. And that that's the all is lost. Everything I fought for, my tangible goal, everything, everything's out the window now. He was just fucking with me. One, one he, of the one of the twisted side story. I mean, part of the story of uh, Bill uh, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, he would starve the victims. Mm-hmm. It's like it's part of the psychological torture that this film like un- unveils. He was starving yeah. their victims, therefore giving the police time to possibly save her. They, it kind of gives you the movie because that's part of the the way they set it up. He's he's he needs to starve them to loosen up their skin. It right. was so disturbing. I was like, oh yes. my god, he's making a skin suit. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and now we, before uh. we jump into Act Three. One little side note. Um, so when I said the senator finds out about this fake deal and she's pissed off, right? She tells, uh, they said, uh, Paul Krendler is over here from Justice. He's going to take over in Memphis. The guy that plays Paul Krendler's name is actually Ron Vauder. Uh, he's an actor. He died in real life of AIDS. And he was in Philadelphia. Uh, which, by the way, Philadelphia is directed by Jonathan Demme. Same director. He cast him in Philadelphia as one of the lawyer partners that knew about Tom Hanks dying of AIDS, right? He died in real life of AIDS. Because he was unavailable when they did the sequel, because of this, they cast Ray Liotta to play Paul Krendler in the sequel, Hannibal. So that's where people, you know, I I didn't know that he had died in real life of AIDS. And when I heard that they were doing Hannibal, the sequel, and that they had cast Ray Liotta as Paul Krendler, my original reaction was, Oh, bullshit. I mean, I love Ray Liotta. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Yeah, absolutely. But let's get the same guy. Yeah. Go get the guy that played him in the first movie. And then when I looked it up, I realized he, he was dead. <laughs> he, yeah. couldn't, he, he couldn't play the part. He had died. Yeah. Um, and so Ray Liotta plays a great uh, Paul Krendler sure. uh, for anyone that seems, has seen that film. A couple other details before we get to the third act. We talked about the Bill Skin's fifth article being about Lecter. Couple other details about. Uh, I'm jumping way back here. We're out of sync, but whatever. We jump around. When Starling first comes into John Crawford's office, there's that chalkboard that has skins written real big on it, right? It's interesting if you zoom in to see some of the other stuff that's written on that board. But what I thought was very interesting is when we get to his actual office where Starling is looking around and then she turns around and sees the pictures on the wall mm-hmm. and the bill skins fifth article and all that stuff yeah yeah behind her off to the side is a couch and on that couch is a pillow and blankets probably nothing right but what i see is this is a guy who works so much his his marriage life is probably in shambles mm-hmm. and because of it doesn't have a lot of lady friends which spawns Lecter into saying at that one point, do you think Crawford wants you sexually? Remember? And he starts going into, true, he's so much older, but do you think he wants, you know what I mean? Like, it, it kind of, to me, I saw that, again, not on the first viewing, maybe not even on the 10th viewing, but on, like, the 100th viewing, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. So he's, maybe he sleeps in his office. Wow. Because his marriage life sucks and he works so much. Yeah. I, I don't but maybe even, that's, that's why he... such a small detail. It's like so fleeting. How? It, I, don't, why, I don't remember it. Why did he pick Starling? Is he attracted to her? You know what I mean? Like, they know each other. He mentions, oh, you grilled me pretty hard on that one seminar at UVA. You know what I mean? Like, so he knows who she is. Sure. So is he attracted to her? It's just something like that. Just a little directorial detail. Yeah. A pillow and blankets on the couch in his office. <laughs> All right. So uh, <laughs> so we get to uh, the third act, right? So what's the second turning point? Obviously, the Dark Knight of the Soul, which is right after the All is Lost, is where she sits with Ardelia, and they're going over the case file, right? You know... He fucked me. He was just screwing me. He didn't really want me to find Buffalo Bill. He's just doing it to escape. And Ardelia says, wait a second, is this Lecter's handwriting? I actually read a Reddit one time that said Ardelia was the one that actually solves the crime because she's the one that says, isn't this Lecter's handwriting? Read this. What does this say? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. She's the one that actually finds it, and it's where he gives her the hint yeah. that it's not random at all. If you try to find it, it's there. And he talked about simplicity in the previous scene. 
we covet what we see every day. That's when she comes to the realization he knew her. He knew the first victim. That's your second turning point because it transitions now into the third act where she's going to investigate Belvedere, Ohio, the missing, the place of the missing first girl. Right. And who the fuck's door does she knock on? Right. Right. <laughs> After enough investigating, she actually and that was walks gra- up. It was, it was great how they how they uh, directed the edit. That. The editing yeah. of that is phenomenal. It's so good. Oh my. Because God. you believe, you, yeah. <laughs> that the FBI is so, and again, when she discovers the 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 diamond shaped patterns, yeah, of this of of the sewing, right? She doesn't say I'm going to be the hero. She calls Crawford, right, and says, "Hey, I figured it out. He's making a dress out of human skin." And Crawford's like, "Yes, we know. We're on our way to pick him up right now. Thank you for all your help. Go home, have a cigarette, whatever." You know, actually, he tells her, keep investigating because we want to get him for murder, not kidnapping. So keep investigating, but we're going to get him right now, and thank you for all your help. And she feels like, ah, I helped. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Tangible goal. Yeah, I better keep investigating because he wanted me to, and we want to get him for murder, not kidnapping. So let me try to link him to the Bimmel, the Catherine Bimmel case. And that's when she goes and knocks on his fucking door, right? (laughs) And he's there, and it leads to the spiritual goal, obviously, of becoming the hero. He saves, she saves the girl, kills the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, again, nothing you ever would have thought would have happened to a trainee at the beginning of the movie. Right. And the way that all unfolds, it ends up in the dark. Yeah, oh, using the darkness for, uh, and he had these uh, night vision that I must say. For the date that this movie was made, those were really good quality night vision. That's like well, only the the, the elite uh, military had those kind back then. And others would say <clears throat> that that's an actual flaw in the movie because if you watch that scene again, when he reaches up, a shadow is crossed across oh, her. So how would there be a shadow yeah, with infrared? <laughs> right? <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. But. That aside, it's still a perfect movie. Yeah. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> you found a flaw. Someone right, found a well, flaw. Well, I refuse to acknowledge that as a flaw in such a perfect movie. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, if, if, if they were Lucas, they would just go fix that. <laughs> that's true. And they probably could on a re release. Right. On a re release, they probably could. Gotta tie it back to Lucas or Star Wars, right? Yeah. Uh, well, of course. That's how we roll. Um, so yeah. All right. So your first reactions, when did, when, when was the first time you saw the film? I'm embarrassed to say this cause yours was so freaking intense. I don't remember. I don't remember if I saw it. I mean, I don't, I don't remember if I saw it in the theater. I don't remember. I'm so, I'm breaking your heart right now. He's like, <laughs> yeah. Ladies I and told gentlemen. you one of the most personal stories. <laughs> It's so bad. It's funny because I have a lame, I have a lame description of wanting to go back into a theater to see a movie, also, but it pales in comparison because the movie that I went back to see, oh no, it was good, but it's not this good. I mean, what was it? Flatliners with Kiefer Sutherland and okay. Uh, actually, I remember was, from my childhood. I, still think I that was remember a good movie. how highly you spoke of that film. Yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. I actually remember that you talking about that movie yeah. because it opens with Kiefer Sutherland going, "Today's a good day to die." Yeah, I thought it was a great. We should do that movie sometime because I thought it was a great film. Um, and that, keep in mind, that's the only time in my life I've ever done that. And I always put an asterisk there because it doesn't count when the Phantom Menace was first released <laughs> because I bought tickets. Yeah. in advance for back-to-back shows <laughs> because I knew I was going to want to watch it twice in a row. So that doesn't count. Sounds of Lambs is the only film where I saw a movie cold yeah, without knowing what it's about. Just right. spending your day there. And I walked out going, nope, I'm going right back in line. I'm going to watch this motherfucker again. That's how intense that film was to me yeah. and how, how inspirational it was on my life. Yeah. Um, and watching it again for this, but I was going to tell you, actually, 
I was going to try to do the podcast without rewatching the, either one because I've seen both of them so many times that I was like, I bet you that I could talk about script structure and all the things that we always talk about without ever watching them again. But I was like, no, nah, fuck that. I got to watch both of them again. I want to watch them again. So, and, and I'm glad I did because again, you pick up little things that you didn't catch the first time. And at this time I took notes, right? I was actually yeah. going to take notes and write down things like theme and stuff like that. But it was really just a joy for me to watch both of these films again for this podcast. I was so excited when we decided that we were going to do this podcast. <laughs> it does not surprise me that we have to break it up into two parts. Um, <laughs> right. Like Star Wars, like we did with Star Wars. Because of how great. I, I mean, I love both of these films. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's your little gesture of affection. <laughs> Exclamation point. As Elaine would say in Seinfeld, I would put exclamation points at the end of all of these sentences. At the end of this one and the end of that one. So anyway, that's my little Seinfeld re reference. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So obviously these movies mean a lot to me. Silence of Lambs more so just because it changed the direction of how I wanted my life to go, sure. uh, to go into writing. Uh, Midsummer, I just think, is the best film of 2019. I think it's an abomination. It got left completely out of the Oscars. Um, but uh, so we encourage you, listeners, if you haven't seen either of these films, please watch them. They are amazing. Even though we just told you the fucking endings to both of them, <laughs> go it's, watch them. It's, I mean, yeah, it's still it's still it. better. It's even better knowing what you know because then you catch little things <laughs> With that the are disclaimers. Please, yeah, yes, I mean, yes. watch this. Yes, if, there if is you some major trigger. <laughs> Shit you know, it, uh, Crawford, <laughs> one of the first things Crawford says to Starling is, do you spook easily? <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's I, I'm going to relay that message to our listeners. If you spook easily, stay away from both of yeah, these. Films. All right. So what do you got for me? Six degrees. Six degrees. Oh, I got to pull my phone up. I forgot everybody's name because I'm like three and a half beers in. And these are high octane. Hold on. I finished, I finished this bottle of Chianti. <laughs> I can't believe it. I don't know if I've I've never you know what I don't want to say I don't know okay. if I'm gonna say I've never finished a bottle of wine in my life because oh. I'm not a, I'm not a wine guy. Yeah, six degrees. Isabel Grill, uh, who's Maja? She plays Maja in yep. Midsummer, the redhead that seduces yes. Christian yep. with her pubes <laughs> and her menstrual juices. I mean, we talk. I, I anticipated that we would talk about her a little bit, so I picked her. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, Charles was it Napier? Charles Napier. Now Charles Lieutenant Napier has been Boyle. in a million things, right. but he right. he passed several years ago, and he hasn't been yep. in a lot of recent stuff. True, but, and he was. But he was he in has, a lot of stuff. He so has a had brutal. A he has a brutal death scene in Silence of the Lambs. Hang on, here. Let me let me um, pop this in honor of uh, okay. his, his career. Charles Napier. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's good. Okay. <laughs> So, how'd we do? Because uh, I thought I might challenge you with Isabel Grill because this she is ain't fucking been in terrible. A lot and this she's is Swedish. This is terrible. It's absolutely <laughs> terrible. This was gut wrenching. Did I get? Be, did, did you get it? I got it. Okay, I made you I got work. It. But and again, remember that we're not allowed to use the movies that we're using. Yeah, that's an added level of difficulty to the original rule. Because otherwise, I would just say Midsummer because Florence Pugh has been in a million things. So it's now. really seven degrees if we're not using this one. I think we just call it seven degrees. Okay, no, listen. <sighs> I'm on my if fourth. I was if I was able to use Midsummer, I probably could have done this in three. Mm -hmm. But without using Midsummer. I have to pick something else she's done. Yes. And has only done Swedish movies, and half of them were short films. <laughs> so, okay. But I found it. I found it. I found it. <laughs> and for those of you saying, oh, he cheated, he used it at IMDb, remember, it's not Stump Jerome. We just want to see if it yeah. can be done. If it can be done, yeah. If it can be done. it's pretty if... fascinating that it can so far. I mean, we've never been, we've never not done it. So. Right, and we've picked some ex obscure names. Yeah, Carrot right? Top and uh, Charlie Chaplin. Oh, the that's infamous. the best one. That's the best one. <laughs> All right, it's so here we degrees. go. So here we go. Isabel Grill. She played Maja, mm -hmm. right, in Midsummer. She was in a 2022 Swedish film called The Store. 
with Latvian actress Eliza Sika. Okay. Okay. Who was in? Who was the lead in the Viking Sisters? Another 2022 Swedish film. This one had Henrik Norman in it. Oh, you went deep. <laughs> oh, I'm deep. Here's where it starts to get to shit you might realize. <laughs> Henrik Norman was in Borg versus McEnroe. Now, you remember that movie that came out with Shia LaBeouf, uh, where Sh- Shia LaBeouf played uh, uh, John McEnroe? It was the movie you know, about I, I Bjorn Borg see it, versus. But I remember the. So yeah. it's a 2017 yeah, yeah. film called Borg versus McEnroe. Okay. All right. Henrik Norman's in that. Who else is in that uh, aside from Shia LaBeouf? Stellan Skarsgård. Yeah, now you got some piece. Now you got some names. <laughs> now I got some names. Stellan Skarsgård, of course, was in the 2009 film Angels and Demons with Tom Hanks, right. who was in Philadelphia, also directed by Jonathan Demme with Charles Napier, who played the judge in Philadelphia. Wow. He was the judge of the of the case. Wow, that, that so was that six, is, wasn't it? No, it was five. Was it Mind five? your I tongue. Trying, I was trying to count. The store, <laughs> Viking you Sisters. Lost me after five. Borg versus <laughs> McEnroe, Angels and Demons in Philadelphia has five connections. Wow. Now, am I embarrassed? Yes, because it could have been done in way less. If I was able to use Midsummer, it would have been able oh, to yeah. be a lot less. Yeah. But remember, the point of this game is to can we find. Are there two people that cannot but, be connected? But that's why I said seven degrees, because we're actually adding a level of difficulty. Yes. So you Because know I don't saying? get to use I don't get to use the movies that we're talking about. Yeah. It's an so, added level. It's harder than six degrees. Right. So I wouldn't be able to use Silence of the Lambs I or Midsummer. I think we're gonna start seven degrees because you have to discuss the two movies that you're gonna connect a different way. <laughs> <laughs> Right? <laughs> it just made sense. <laughs> I can't think right now. I have too much Chianti on the brain. Know, man. But yes, so, for those of you listening, well I, I usually I usually try to do six degrees off the cuff, like off the top of my head. This one, my brother just kicked me in the nuts. He's bothering me at work. He's like, don't forget six degrees. I'm like, son of a... My next, I was texting my ne- you two nights ago. I know. T- my next break, I'm like, all right. I'm looking at IMDb at the people that were in it. I'm like, oh, um, here we go. <laughs> so I enjoy my part. I just get to throw shit at you. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard. It's so. difficult. <laughs> but... But we made it happen. It yeah. can be done. It, it can be done. And that's our thesis, that any two can be connected with the six degrees. We have yet to be stumped. Yep. So. Um, Let's so, land the plane. Yeah, I don't know. How do we end this? I mean, it's it was two masterpieces. Uh, you need to see one of, both of them. One of the greatest films of the 90s. One of the greatest films of the 2010s. Um one completely snubbed by the Oscars, one absolutely adored by the Oscars. I think Midsummer is going to become a legendary film. You know what I mean? Because it's I, so I think it's it will so, too. still so recent to when it was made. I'd like to listen back to this podcast in 20 years and, and you, you know what I mean? Cuz You I know who think... would love to listen to this podcast? Hmm. Your daughters. Particularly Hannah and Caitlin cuz they both loved Midsummer. Kate, no, I don't so here's was it not Caitlin? I, Definitely I Hannah. Caitlin. Definitely Hannah. Yeah, it was Caitlin, Hannah. I just asked if she had seen it. I'm pretty sure she said no. Okay, so it was Hannah. Yeah, I don't know. I hadn't talked to Hannah about it, but I'll have to talk to her. <laughs> All you have to do is text one word, Midsummer. Yes, Hannah. We will text text you. I actually, I'm kind of disappointed. I did not consult Hannah because they would have really loved me feeding their point of view. So. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? So, yes. and, anyways, and it's unfair Hannah, I will be because I've been feeding <laughs> because I had been feeding mom's point of view <laughs> while we while we did this podcast. So, yeah. it's only fair that you should have been able to feed point yes, of view of, but of your Hannah, daughter. we will be talking. This is this was a amazing film as disturbing as it was. <laughs> yes. So, that's where we should land it. Uh Man, did we been 3 hours? 3? Oh, it's uh, 160 minutes. I can't do math right now. 
Well, that's... <laughs> but that's of only recorded time. We've taken breaks. <laughs> well, I, I paused during that break. So it's pretty much... I mean, this is going to be a long... Two long ones. I mean, this is... Uh, we split it in two. I think we're going to release these in two separate episodes because it's yeah. worth it. Because it, yeah, who can sit through an hour and 61 minutes of two guys yeah. drunk talking? And, unless you have a long <laughs> drive ahead of you. <laughs> Yeah, it's great for road trips. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, the last time I went down to L.A., I, I listened to all of our old podcasts. It takes up the time, man. Yeah, it does. You just, oh, yeah. It's funny because you anticipate what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm always like, oh, here's where I said that funny so, thing. We just totally <laughs> nerded out over ourselves. Can you believe this? <laughs> it's pretty gross. We just, you know what we did? We mixed ourselves. <laughs> I have to say, we set a record on this one tonight. This was the first one you almost died. You almost died on air. You have no idea. Oh, my God. All right. Well, until next time, uh, cheers and go see some damn movies. I'm Jerome Wiegand. I'm Chris Wiegand. And we'll see you at the movies. See you at the movies.